All right, so as uh, Steve said, I am doing, I'm doing uh, research in the book of Job, and that's um, pretty much most of what I know. So if you ask me any, like, any questions, I'll find, find a way to bring it back to Job. But um, I, I love the book of Job, um, and um, hopefully this is kind of, if you had one sermon to kind of, kind of get an overview of what Job is about, um, this is kind of the sermon that'll hopefully do that for you. And um, it's my prayer that as after this, that you'll be able to kind of have some things to hang your hat on as you go through the book of Job, because um, it can be a, quite a, a long and complex book. So uh, the, the title of the sermon this morning is, is Job's Hope for the Church. Job's Hope for, for the Church. And as we get into it, I, here's a question for us just to kind of orient us. Um, how would you view your trials if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God cared for you? How, how would you view your, your trials if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God cares for you? Now, as we think about that, we can turn to the New Testament promises, and those are absolutely key and absolutely true. But it is also true that Severe trials can still shake our faith, can still bring us through a, a difficult time. And uh, to an extent, intellectual knowledge of God's word and his, his promises are not the same as experiential knowledge, right? That's why the times when our faith grows the, grows the most is when we go through hard times. And also as we look outward, when we think about trials and sufferings, there are parts of this world that, if we're honest, it seems like they're filled with unchecked evil and, and suffering. Um, and this raises a question. Suffering and evil in our own life and in the world at large, it is attention for the goodness, goodness of God. And it's actually, if you think about it, it's the main secular objection to God as well. Most of the time when you talk to an atheist, um, when you really get down to it, their problem with God is not going to be intellectual. It's going to be a moral problem. And there's times when people truly uh, hate God and think that he's a cruel tyrant. I've, I've talked, talked with people doing evangelism where um, they don't know what they're saying, but they would say that they would, they would rather be in hell than be with the kind of God that would let these things happen. And... Uh, for example, um, I was talking with my uncle once over a Christmas dinner, asking him why he doesn't like believe in God. And at first, he was talking about evolution and like science, and I, I kind of pushed past that. Um, uh, and then he was talking about, well, you know, all the religions in the world—they're they're the same. And I was like, I kind of pushed past that. And then I, when we got down to it, he says, I can't believe in a God that would take my uh, mom of cancer at. 46 years old. That was the key event for him. Or my uh, friend, um, one of my best friends growing up, um, he uh, was raised in the church and walked away from the faith. And when I asked him why he doesn't believe in God anymore, he said that he, he has anxiety and he prayed that God would take away his anxiety. And when, when God didn't, he said, I can't believe in a God that wouldn't take that, that away. So 
when people think about it, it's, it's really not, um, they, people have doubts about the goodness of God or they distrust the wisdom of God or the rightness of God in suffering. And when we think about our trials, the problem with our trials is not the trials themselves, but what they potentially imply about God. Now, it's, it, if, if you really think about it, it's not that we go through the hard times itself. It's what those hard times could imply about God. Things like, does God care? Is he just? Is this truly the best way that God could have done things? And is the way God runs this world, is that right? Is, is that good? And it, if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God cares for you, then you can endure even through the most di- difficult times, right? But if you actually doubt, um, or if you're not sure that God has your best, uh, in, uh, that God is right or good, that you can't trust God when you go through hard times, and that is when we would get crushed by our trials. And so when we think about it, we have to think about the goodness and the wisdom of God in our trials, but it has to go beyond just head knowledge. We have to um, know in our hearts, we have to um, wrestle through in our hearts, how am I going to think about God when difficult times come? Can I trust that God cares about me? We have to think through these things and wrestle through them. And this is where the book of Job is a gift for the church because Job uh, was a man who was upright. Um, the, the, the book kind of describes him as the, the most God-fearing man in the known world at the time. He was blessed, blessed by God, and yet he suffered immensely and innocently, and he didn't have God's word. He was at a time, probably around the time of Abraham, he didn't have any of the promises of God's word to turn to to anchor his hope. And that was by, by design, by God. And so most of us know about the Job of Job 1 and 2, where Job loses, loses everything, and then he worships God and praises God. And that is an amazing um, example of faith in God. But Job also contemplate some very dark things about God. Uh, some of the things that we'll see are pr- probably the harshest, difficult things about God that you'll find anywhere in the scriptures. And, and yet, um, Job gives us the unique gift of being able to step inside someone's shoes, and they suffered, and they asked the questions. When, when he, Job went through some of the most difficult times you can imagine, and he doubted the goodness of God, and he asked the questions um, that, if true, would make everything right. And so what, what we're going to see in Job is that while Job does say some very dark and difficult things about God, Job also has, uh, he doesn't just stay there. He has a series of, of really questions or wishes that if these things were true, then that would make even the most intense like suffering um, separation from God like worth it. If these few things are true, then, then he would know that even the most difficult times, he could trust that God is good and right in this world. And so what, what we're going to see in, 
in Job is really something we can apply to us is we can hope in what Job hoped in or we can have the we can have the truth as we'll see what Job hoped in we have in the gospel. And so we're going to explore three aspects of these um, wishes that Job had. So there's just going to be three parts. There's, there's quite, quite a bit more here than we have time, but just three main parts. Um, the first one is going to be Job's question, then Job's hope, then Job's answer. Job's question, Job's hope, Job's answer. So Job's question. For Job's question, let's turn to Job 9. I'm going to pick up right in the middle of the book, Job 9, verses 1 and 2. Then Job answered and said, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? Um, So this question that Job asked, this phrase, how can a man be in the right or right? um, It's the same word where we get the word for justify or justification. Um, So Job is saying, how can anyone be declared righteous or be pure or stand in God's sight and be good? And Job says this with a a tone of desperation and hopelessness. And so the question we have to ask then, how do we get from the Job of Job 1 where he worships God, praises God's name, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and then in Job 9, he's, he's asking this question about how can anybody, not just Job, how can anybody be righteous in God's sight? Um, the answer to that uh, is found in Job 3. It's found in Job 3 because Job 1 and 2 we are more familiar with. But then in Job 3, if you look at Job 3, verse, verses uh, 1 through 3, Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job answered and said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born in the night which said a man is conceived. So Job is wishing he was never born, that even the day that he was born on did not exist. Job has gone from a, a, a place of total trust in God to complete despair And Job even gives us the answer to why he's thinking this way. As you just kind of skip down through chapter 3, verse 11. Why did I not die from the womb, come forth from the womb, and breathe my last? Um, Verse 20. Why is light given to him who is troubled and life to the bitter of soul? Verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? So Job is asking why. Job isn't questioning the fact of what God did. He already passed those tests. He trusted God in that. But Job is asking why now. And uh, there's other parts of Job that kind of indicate Job had been in this situation for a few months now. So uh, he went through, he lost his family, he lost everything. He's in chronic pain. He praises God, but then months and months go by. He doesn't have God's word to anchor his hope in. God doesn't answer him. He's crying out to God, and he starts to doubt. Not that God caused his suffering, but the reasons for it. He starts to ask why. And really what what he says is, 
if there's, if there's no why, then there's no point to life. There's, there's, there's no point to anything, and we'll, we'll see a bit more of that. If you look in the next chapter in Job 4, when Job's friends come, Job's friends have this really um, karmic idea that if you do good things, God will do good things to you, and if you do bad things, God will do bad things to you. So Job's first friend, Eliphaz, he's trying to counsel Job. And verse 7, Eliphaz says, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright wiped out? According to what I have seen, those who plow wickedness and those who sow trouble harvest it. So Eliphaz and his, and his friends kind of have this closed system idea. This is how God works, and it's always in response to what man does. And actually, that's how pretty much every religion apart from Christianity thinks. Um, but then if you go down to verse 17... So how does Eliphaz know that a man as upright as Job, everyone knew he, he was good, how does Eliphaz know that Job deserves to be crushed by God? Verse 17, can mankind be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? That's the same thing that Job will say later on. Eliphaz is saying, look, Job, mankind... Um, yeah, we should do good things, but ultimately, no matter how many good things we do, we can't be perfect like God, right? And so even if we do good things, God can pretty much crush us anytime he wants. And that kind of worked for Eliphaz because he was a wealthy man and well-known. But Job, that didn't work so well for him, right? Job um, was comfortable, and he did truly fear God. He did truly love God. But Job is not prepared for the kind of, for what has been happening. And so it worked for Eliphaz, but for Job, he's thinking, he says the same thing that Eliphaz says, but he says, if even the best of men, if their faithful good works cannot merit a blessed relationship with God, then nobody can. And if it doesn't matter what I do, God can still treat me just like I am an evil person, then what's the point of doing anything, right? And so Job kind of um, follows this line of thought. And just as kind of a, Job understands that really the key question is not the circumstances, but the character of God in them. He is focused on um, he's, he's not even talking about what happened to him. He's talking about, can I trust God in this? And so if you look at, uh, turn to Job 7, Job kind of d- develops this thought. Um, Job 7, verse 1, Job, again, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about mankind. Is not man conscripted to labor on earth? Are not his days like the days of a hired man? So he's basically saying, if this is all life is, we're just born to suffer, then die, then life is just, there isn't anything good about life. There's there's no point to life. And towards the end of Job 7, um, if God's involvement with mankind, if it's to cause them like suffering, if it's arbitrary, the worst thing that can happen is for God to care about you, right? It's for God to take thought of you. So Job 7, verse 17. What is man that you magnify him, that you set your heart on him, 
that you examine him every morning and test him every moment. And that's, if you guys think that sounds familiar, David says this in Psalm 8. Um, David says it in a good way. David's like, God, I'm, I'm so thankful that you care about us. Job says, I want you to stop caring about me. Just leave me alone. And this is actually, again, not, not that Job is uh, an atheist here, but this kind of moral heart issue, um, I've encountered it, and if you talk to enough people, you'll encounter it too, where they just hate God and want God to leave them alone. Um, Job continues and says, Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spit? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? So he thinks God just hates him and is trying to just torture him, and he wants God to just leave him alone. Verse 21, Why then do you not forgive my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and you will seek me earnestly, but I will not be. This is kind of a hint about, uh, of our next point, but it's a, a hint of what, what Job wants. Job hasn't totally turned his back on God yet. He wants God. He, he knows, all right, there isn't anything I can do um, to be truly good in God's sight. So God has to do something gracious and kind towards me. Um, and Job continues this line of thought. Now we turn to Job 9. This is where we get to our question that we started with. Job says, how can a man be in the right before God? So he says, nobody can be righteous in God's sight. And coming down um, in verse 22 of Job 9, this is what Job says. Again, he is returning to this theme of if there's no hope of being righteous in God's sight, then this is what life means. He says, it is all one. He's talking about his own life. Therefore, I say, he, that is God, consumes the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge puts to death, suddenly he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? So these are very... um, these are very difficult words to even see in the scriptures. There's no one else in God's word that comes close to saying these kinds of things about God. And not that Job is um, totally right to say these things, but God is, God is bringing Job through this and so that we can see, okay, if there is no way to be in a right relationship with God, then... Really, it doesn't matter whether you're good or bad, and there's just the suffering and evil in this world just means God is just this cruel tyrant. Um, and once again, Job understands that the, that the key is, is not, um, he doesn't just stop that, oh, there's uh, social injustice, there's bad things happening, there's wars happening. He says, uh, God covers the faces of its judges. So he's He's obviously not totally right in how he's phrasing it, but he under, understands the real key. God is ultimately sovereign over everything, right? And the real key is, is the way God does things right. Do, does God have a plan to actually fix evil, or is mankind born to suffer and die, and God 
is that God either cannot fix evil or he isn't willing to. These are the places Job is going to. Um, Now, just by way of application, before we go to our next point, um, once again, Job had a theocentric, God-centered view of the world. Whatever was happening in his life, he viewed it through the lens of what is God doing in this? And he viewed it through the lens of God's character, not just his power, but also his kindness. And even the social evils in this world, Job knew, what is God going to do about it? It's, it wasn't ultimately a matter of what he can do. It's God's the one that's ultimately in control of it, and what is God going to do about it? So when we go through trials or difficult times, the first step toward having a a right view of them is to view them through God's lens, not our own circumstances. So as we move to our next point, we have to ask then, how do we answer the secular charge that God doesn't care in a meaningful way? And then the key, just for practical for us, how can we overcome our sinful nature to be right with God? I think you guys are kind of already thinking along some lines, but the key thing is Job is thinking along these lines too. And this is the key. How can mankind overcome their sinful nature to be right with God? And this leads us to Job's hope. So we saw Job's question, is how can a man be right in God's sight? We saw the implications if that question is impossible to, to answer. And in Job's hope, Well, Job's question is his hope, right? He says, if a man can be right in God's sight, if God can forgive sin, then that means when I go through hard times, that doesn't mean automatically that God hates me. Like, if I know that I stand in a blessed relationship with God, despite my trials, then I can endure anything. And if God has a plan for evil, um, to actually fix it, not just perpetuate it, but actually fix it, then I can trust God. Even if I don't have all all the answers for what goes on in this world, I can trust God to be good and right in the end. And this this term, again, uh, if you look at chapter 9, verse 2, how can a man be in the right? That is, that's where we get that term for justify, and that is a legal term. And the, the really interesting thing is, is that the book of Job has more occurrences of the, the word for justify than any other Old Testament book, almost more than all of them put together. And if you add in the word for being right, like righteous, it's more than any book in the Bible, even Romans. So that kind of tells you, that should give you like a, a hint of where we're going to be heading. Um, so what Job wants to do then He wants to stand in God's heavenly court. He wants to stand before a holy God, and he wants to be declared pure and holy in God's sight. But he knows there's no human way that that can happen. Um, And we saw Job's doubts. But Job doesn't just stay there. Job's friends don't ever move beyond the cause, cause and effect system trying to prove that Job sinned. But Job, because of his faith in God, wishes for a way in which man and God could both be right. And so if you go to the end of chapter 9, verses 32 through 34, this is what Job says. 
Job wants to stand in, in God's court, but he knows he can't. For he is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court for judgment together. There is no mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him remove his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. So Job, this is the first time where Job has um, described an actual way in which a person can stand in God's court and be righteous in his sight. It's if somebody who is also in heaven, um, but also man, can lay his hand on both man and God and bring them together. And in verse 34, the language of let him remove his rod from me, that's a common term for God's wrath and judgment on sin. So Job is saying, I want this heavenly-like mediator to be able to intercede between man and God and remove, somehow enable God the judge to forgive my sin and remove his wrath from me. That's a pretty amazing hope, right? And we kind of know how the Bible answers that, but it's just incredible that Job was thinking along these lines even way, way back then. But that's, that's part of the point is that um, because Job was so early, there was no other scriptures or promises for Job to turn to. When Job goes through those hard times, he asks the most foundational questions that need to be asked. And these are the kinds of things that he's talking about. So just for time's sake, um, what time do we get out? Eleven <laughs> thirty. All right, cool. We've got uh, plenty of time then. Um, Job returns to this hope multiple times. Um, I think because I have more time than I thought. I, there's a passage that I, I think is good that when I preach this sermon, uh, most people don't get to hear it. But I think I'm going to show you guys now. Um, so you guys are lucky. Or uh, so Job 14. Um, Job 14. So. Job is continuing this theme, and he, he understands this. Uh, uh, as, you, as I read verses 1 through 6, you, you'll kind of see um, Job kind of summarizing what we've been talking about. And the key is this. Mankind's sinfulness is not in what they do. It's in their very nature. So not even the most righteous guide for a man on the planet at that time, Job, he can't overcome the sinful nature that he has. And so Job says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not stand. You also open your eyes on him and bring me into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. That's a famous um, Old Testament verse on original sin that's been used throughout church history. Then verses five, 5 and 6. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass, turn your gaze from him that he may cease from toil until he accepts his days like a hired man. So what Job is saying is basically what we've heard is that, okay, if there's no way to overcome my sinful nature, then God just leave me alone so that I can live out my life in peace before I die. 
And so the, the key problem that Job faces is, I am born in sin, and death is at the end of life, and death separates me from God. Uh, death is the ultimate judgment upon sin. It's the ultimate sign of my sin and separation from God. So Job also knows not just that a mediator has to come, but I have to somehow have a new body that is beyond death. I have to somehow stand before God with a new body. And that's what Job says, uh, verses 14 through 17. Note, so Job is talking about resurrection here. Um, he says this, Actually, I'll start in verse 13. Oh, that you would conceal me in Sheol. That's the Old, Old Testament term for uh, the, the grave. That you would hide me until your anger returns to you. That you would set a limit for me and remember me in a good way, not a bad way. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my labor, I will wait until my change comes. That change is talking about a new body where God doesn't take sin into account. Then, if Job can rise again, this is what he says in verses 15 through 17. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands for then you would number my steps, you would not keep watch over my sin, my transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover up my iniquity. So this is Job's hope. He, he wants to stand before God, and he knows he needs a new nature that is not bounded by sin and death. So he has this incredible hope of standing before God's courtroom in a, a resurrected body, and he doesn't just want to have his sin forgiven. He doesn't just want to get things back. He wants to be reconciled with God. He wants to know that God cares for him, and he wants to be close to God. That's the, the heart of true faith. And the climax of this kind of standing in God's courtroom after I've risen from the dead, it comes in Job 19, probably the most uh, famous passage in Job. This is where Job brings brings together both kind of the legal themes of justification and where he's talking about rising again. Job 19, verses 25 through 27. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will rise up over the dust of this world or over the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed... Yet from my flesh I shall behold God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. So here, again, you see Job's heart. After he's died, he, he knows. Well, what Job wants to know is if this is true, then he can endure to the end. He can trust God if he knows that in the end he's going to stand before God, and God will care about him. And he's putting his hope in not himself, not his good works, but a redeemer, a person that saves somebody out of a hopeless situation where he can behold God. That phrase, behold, it's kind of seeing someone face, face to face. So he wants to see God face to face. He wants to have a blessed relationship with God where sin is not a barrier between them. And if he knows that that can be true, then he can endure anything. So, again, this is the goal of Job's hope. 
not just forgiveness of sins, but reconciliation to God. And just by way of application as we move to our final point, um, God is not obligated to judge evil immediately in this life. There is another life to come, yes? And God is perfectly just in the end. And he will either judge sin in the unbeliever or he will judge it or he has judged it in his son. So God will be perfectly just in the end because there is a life to come. So our focus should be on the blessings and the judgment to come. It should be on the life to come as we even sang about. And then both this is both for unbelievers and for like believers. Do you understand that nothing you do can merit a blessed relationship with God? Uh, Job had such an amazing response to even his like suffering. Like if, um, even though Job said some difficult things, if I lost my whole family and everything all at once, I I don't think I would have the same response that Job had. So Job was in a was a model of faith in God, and yet Job understood that not even the best of men can reach the infinite holiness that God has. So that's, that's the starting point, both to be right with God and even to have a right view of God in your trials. You have to know that only through God's gracious provision of salvation can you be right with Him, and that God actually has done that for you. And um, as we go to our final point, Job's answer, we... We, we saw Job's question, and we saw Job's hope, which was in that question, and Job's answer. And um, uh, just for time's sake, we don't have time to go there. We got partway, but you can write down Job uh, 33, verses 23 through 28. Job 33, 23 through 28, Job's fourth friend and good friend, Elihu, kind of synthesizes all of Job's hope and um, really counsels him with that. But uh, just to move along, we're going to see, does the New Testament answer Job's hope? Uh, The answer is yes, of course, right? Uh, Does the New Testament answer Job's hope? Well, one passage we can turn to is in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Okay, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Notice the emphasis that Paul has here. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Paul emphasizes the fact that Jesus isn't just God, he's also man, and that because of that he can mediate between man and God. And that word for mediator is the same word in the Greek that Job uses in Job 9 when he says, uh, for God is not a man like I am, and he wishes for that mediator. Uh, Going from verse 5 to verse 6, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the witness for this proper time. Paul is saying the reason why God can forgive sins is because, and still be just, is because Jesus, the mediator of man, was that ransom that paid for your sins. And um, Elihu in Job 33 even talks about um, a mediator paying a ransom for sins. So Paul knows, and he's probably even thinking about Job here, he knows that we have hope 
because our mediator is Jesus Christ. What Job hoped for became true in Jesus Christ. And then just the final passage uh, we can turn to is Romans 8. Romans 8. Paul is saying, how can somebody stand before God's court and be just? That's a huge theme throughout Romans. And now in Romans 8, he's giving the reasons why we can stand before the courtroom of God and Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you can stand before a holy God in God's courtroom and not be condemned because of Jesus Christ. And uh, I'll just read um, verses 31 through 34. Verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? So he's talking about persecution and he's talking about the, the hope that the Christian has. And he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So this is the key. Paul, like Job, has a theocentric view of life. He says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And if you're ever tempted to doubt the goodness of God in your trials, well, God gave you his very own son. There is no greater testimony of love than God sending his own son to be that ransom payment for your sin. So we have the ultimate hope that because God gave us his son, God is going to graciously give us all things. There is a life to come where God will make all things right and where we will be with God. Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Yes, he is the, uh, who is the one who condemned? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Notice again, the focus of Paul, like Job, is not on the circumstances, but how can I be righteous in God's sight? And so he's saying, even if Satan himself comes and points out all of your sin, if you're in Christ, God has justified you. You are righteous before God. And you know if God has done that, if he's graciously done that, that nothing can separate you from his love in Christ. And Paul even says, even now, Christ was raised and he intercedes for us. So even now he acts as our mediator for us, pleading his blood before the throne of God. Uh, this is an incredible truth that I'm, that I'm sure you guys have heard here multiple times. And what the book of Job does is it says, what if these things weren't true? What would life be like? And I, and I, I, I hope what the book of Job has begun to do for us is to kind of give the framework or the foundation to help us appreciate more. To that, that these precious truths that you have if you are in Christ, that God justifies you despite your sin, uh, that Christ in, uh, intercedes for you, that you have life in Christ, that, that these truths would not grow stale, um, that you would not grow cold to these truths, but um, you, you would think about what Job went through and the questions that he asked, and that if you can know that God cares about you, if you are in Christ, if, if you know 
that God loves you in that way, then you can go through the most uh, difficult times and trust God. And even when you look out on the world and see the, the evil in this world, you know that God has a plan. God, doesn't, God isn't just um, not willing or not able to. He has a plan to judge sin once and for all and make things right. And that's what we would preach even to the atheists. It's, are you going to trust in the wisdom of God and in the provision of his son to pay for sin or not? And uh, that is the ultimate truth and the ultimate reality for us. So in conclusion, just to kind of sum up, we must, to, to have a right view of our trials, we have to have a God-centered view of this world, and then we have to see that God has, in the gospel, answered Job's hope, justified us, and he has, the gospel really does give an answer to the problem of evil in a meaningful way. The gospel is also the assurance that God cares for you. If you are going through extremely difficult times right now even, you can look to God's word and see God gave you his own son. The ultimate question in our lives is not what we're going through, but the character and uh, love of our God in those trials. And if you know that God loves you enough to forgive your sin and make you right with him, then you can go through anything with the love of God behind you in that. And Job also is a very, very clear picture. The only way anybody can be right in God's sight is through the gospel. It's through if God graciously provides that salvation for you, and he has in Christ. So if you're trusting in your own good works or your faithful life, that that's good enough for God, well, you can look to Job. And Job was the example of somebody who could have merited a blessed relationship with God, and it did not matter. The problem of sin is in our nature, not in necess- it's reflected in what we do, but it comes from who we are, and we need a new nature in Christ. So put your hope in Christ alone, not in your works, and praise God and rejoice in God for what he has done in Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we've had in your word to take a look at the kinds of questions a, a man like Job asks when he goes through difficult times that he asks the most important questions anyone can ask. is how can man be right before you? And we thank you for this gift that you have given us, the book of Job, that we can read his um, the questions he asks, the hopes that he had, the things that he fought with, and we can see how the New Testament answers that hope, that in in your son we have the assurance that you care for us, you have a plan to be perfectly just in the end, you have forgiven our sin, help us to have this view uh, that because we are right with you, we can endure anything. And we can have our joy rooted in you. And one day um, we will see you face to face. Father, I pray that um, we would have this hope set on you and not this world. In Christ's name, amen.